0: You're listening to Under the Radar. I'm Sue O'Connell sitting in for Callie Crossley. Joining me now is former State Senator Diane Wilkerson. Diane represented Roxbury, Jamaica Plain and parts of Dorchester and Mattapan as the senator from the 2nd Suffolk District from 1993 to 2008. In September 2013, she was released from prison after serving three and a half years for bribery. Welcome to the show, Diane Wilkerson. How are you? I'm you're fine. Just, you're Wonderful day. dandy. Wonderful day. <laughs> Listen. Wonderful um, day in Boston. What can I say? <laughs> we had a... Um, an opportunity to print in South End News your perspectives from attending one of the Boston Olympic meetings which was uh, quite enlightening talk to me a little bit about your motivation to go to the meeting and uh, some of the folks that were there as citizens just getting information
1: i think the the um, the motivation i think being a resident of boston and and being fascinated at the idea that we could be host to such an event and I said fascinated," I didn't say supportive or opposed, but fascinated, and I actually had not seen the presentation, so I was very curious to do that. Um, it was a very, very uniquely representative Boston audience, mm-hmm. probably a good a very good number of people there who were very clear that they were the the, the no Olympics the more organized, and some just didn't support it, but they weren't part of an organized effort. But I would say it was clear that the overwhelming number of people in that room were there because they were curious, they were interested, and they were supportive, and even still had questions.
0: Now, Diane Wilkerson, one of the things that you pointed out (coughs) is the displacement issue of people. You know, that that one of the points you made is this sort of, uh, uh, in quotes, cleansing that some cities are reporting happens.
1: It's interesting. I remember in the discussions leading up to the DNC that there was a concern that many Boston residents would have to leave town for the week. <laughs> now, you know, and it's that funny because a
0: lot of folks aren't old enough. You know, we we talk about the DNC like it just happened right. last last in week. 10 and years I remember ago. you sharing with us uh, over at Bay Windows in the South End News when you were at the L.A., or the Chicago DNC the, which one was it Los Angeles Los Angeles DNC. and sitting in a bus getting getting <laughs> confined
1: to a bus. bus
0: that because of the traffic and the security issues for 3 and, or 4
1: hours and we weren't allowed to put the windows down
0: right and and bringing that knowledge to the planning for for <laughs> Massachusetts and right. that you know we had we had uh, a ghost town in In um, Boston, many of the the payoffs that we thought would happen of people coming into Boston and going to the neighborhoods, number of white trucks getting stopped on on the well, expressway on the exactly. way exactly
1: I think I think the point um, the the point of issue for the Olympics is while people in Boston o four were concerned about the residents having to be gone for four days, the bigger concern for an Olympic size event is given the history of what happens with host cities that host it is that the people will be gone forever mm mm-hmm. And and certainly London, the most recent, it was a major issue, something along the lines of 90,000, 100,000 people, like arrested, aggressive law enforcement activity in the weeks before. So from the public servant side of me, mm-hmm. that's my concern is, how do you prevent that? And we've got 10 years head start. And I'm saying prevent it, assuming that the answer for us is, you know, Boston is the city. And you know what? Even if it isn't the city... Won't it be a good idea to be planning for that? How do we kind of push back on the gentrification that's already mm-hmm. going on? Here in
0: Chinatown is a, a perfect example of uh, many folks who are living in bad conditions but are living in, are residents of Chinatown. They might have that's two right. or three or four or five or six people in an apartment that was not made for more than one person. <laughs> and with the new buildings coming in, where do those folks go? And that's just sort of a microcosm of what would happen with the Olympics. It really
1: is. And I think that's why there's so much concern. Ironically, there was a resident, uh, several Residents from Chinatown that were there that night. You know, you mentioned at the outset that I represented Roxbury, uh, Dorchester, Mattapan, but I also represented the South End, Back right. Bay, and, and Beacon Hill, and Chinatown. Yes, so I learned a lot about the reality of life. You know, I used to tell people in Roxbury, you know, you think you really got it bad. Chinatown had, and 20 years ago, the lowest annual income any neighborhood in the city, mm-hmm. where people could work 40 hours a week in a year and make less than ten thousand dollars. And as a practice, you'll have, as you said, several people living in an apartment up over the restaurants. And so there's major concern. Every time there's a new building goes up, it's one step closer to displacement. Then you have an incentive to fix up the apartment. And then, of course, now you can charge more. Mm -hmm. And so the very question that was raised by the residents from Chinatown is that, one, I hope there's going to be employment. In fact, the gentleman was supporting the event. I thought that was interesting. Mm -hmm. He supported the Olympics, um, but thought that there really needed to be a plan for employment opportunities for residents in Chinatown and wanted to. were concerned about housing. There was another person who asked the question about housing. It's real. I think it's very real.
0: Now, the thing that caught my um, attention and and, um, reminded me of the expertise that you bring uh, to looking at the Boston 2024 effort is that of this this (laughs) ongoing question of public funding versus private funding. Yes. And I remember you just so illuminating and educating me one day at South End News around the Columbus Center and 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 how what is public funding kind of magically becomes right. um, just funding.
1: Well, because so many uh, people who were opposed to Columbus Center, I think that was our conversation, yeah. were opposed because they were opposed to public funding being used for private project. And my point was then, and certainly is now because this conversation is very, very timely, Massachusetts, we do something. I don't know if we do it different than other places, but I think we do play cute with this whole concept of public funding. The reality is is that there isn't a sports team in our beloved sports town that hasn't been the major beneficiary of the public largesse. We, we and when we say
0: sports team, we're basically <clears throat> saying private company.
1: They're very private. Yeah. So, you know, we <laughs> can say private.
0: Patriots or Red Sox, but we're also saying I mean, private is company. Is
1: anyone going to argue that we have not completely rebuilt the infrastructure in Kenmore Square right. around Fenway Park? Mm-hmm. Um, 95, Route 1. Go from 95, off 95 to Route 1. You have the most senior beautiful ride from, from right, the Foxborough. exit to Foxborough, right. right to Gillette Stadium. And certainly TD North, I in my first year in the legislature, 1993, we appropriated money for the state's contribution around the infrastructure mm-hmm. for the you know, the um, uh, North Station and all of the surrounding to what was the new Boston Garden. And so we do it all the time is the point. Right. Now, the benefit here is the, the proponents of Boston 24 have been very clear that they do not intend to use any public funds. The mayor, in fact, at that meeting said I would sign a commitment saying that we're not going to use any public funds. But what they also said is already we have almost $6 billion in infrastructure planned in the city, which actually is a whole better situation than we had even in 2004 mm-hmm. around the Red Sox or the um, the Celtics or the Patriots. The reality is, is that if the infrastructure is a system and our whole, and then we know, By virtue of what our experience has been for the last two weeks, we need some major infrastructure repair in Massachusetts, certainly in the capital city, um, that we could could end up with very, very new and modernized technology around our transit system, our roads, our highways, getting in and out of Boston, Mm -hmm. our greenways, which all is a wonderful thing for us. uh, And uh, certainly the Olympics is going to benefit from that.
0: Right. So is the question, so so this (laughs) this money of of $5.3 billion billion with a B, billion with with a a B B dollars, that's money that the state has said, we are going to spend this money one way or another. That's right. 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 And and the Olympic Committee can
1: say, the Boston Committee can say, okay, that's money we can spend. Well, they can't spend it, but certainly all of the infrastructure that's going to be spent, you know, spending that 5.3 will only help Boston's position relative to our application and the decision that gets made in 2017. And so I think that it is very possible to meet the uh, commitment around that promise, not to spend mm-hmm. public money directly, but indirectly. We're going to have a major infrastructure uh, uplift, and it's going it could benefit the Olympics, but even if we don't get it, my position is we're going to be benefited from it. And so we have to make those decisions about what, you know, really the decision to me, And I think it was said that night, what do we want the city to look like? Mm -hmm.
0: I'm Sue O'Connell. I'm filling in for Callie Crossley, and you're listening to Under the Radar. And we're chatting with Diane Wilkerson, talking about uh, some of the public-private fundings of the Olympic bid from Boston to bring it here. We're we're digging in some more about this public... Private funding issue because it's so complicated for most general folks to understand. So, the money has been allocated and the projects have already been determined.
1: That's right. A whole list of various projects. You'll see bridges and roads and uh, MBTA has some, not as much as I think we'd all like, <laughs> yeah. but some of, of the whole transportation um, funding that would make the city more walkable. And that kind of um, infrastructure is already been designated. So it's not that the Boston 2024 could go into the list and say, we'd like to take some for this. It doesn't work that way. Mm -hmm. And actually, I think that's what makes it even a step farther away from the situation that we would see around the uh, enhancement of the roadways to Gillette where the money was appropriated specifically for that purpose. Right. But that's not what we have here. These are things that are already in the work um, that clearly are going to benefit tremendously. And that's not even counting, by the way, the 19 new hotels that are going to be built in Boston and mostly on the waterfront in the next three to five years. Uh, there's a major, major um, private investment going on. The new 1,500-room um, hotel. Mm-hmm connected to the Boston Convention Center. The 300,000 square foot expansion of the Boston Convention Center that was that's already <clears throat> you know online and going to happen whether we have Olympics or not.
0: Can I ask you a question about the MBTA? For those of us who have followed and paid attention and and that's not a knock at at, at folks who haven't because it's a it's a it's a daily challenge. It's not surprising what happened during the storm happened and it's it was you know, I did a show here filling in for Cali a few years ago, where I learned we have um, we have blacksmiths who work. That's right. And forge parts for the Red Line I'm because a third of the Red Line cars are were launched in like 1969. Now, as a state lawmaker, so you can't pick
1: up the phone and call and, and order yeah, a part. Right. They but have to make the part.
0: We should get some 3D printers probably to so. make it. That would probably right. be we'd be exactly. on the cutting edge again of Actually, the old. Call time.
1: MIT and get the Fab Lab <laughs> set up over there. Right. right?
0: And it's not, I mean, you know, you've been out of the state legislature for a little bit, but it certainly was an issue that was top, top much of has mind. Not changed. How, how do we not fund the MBTA the way that it needs to be funded? It's just like, it, it's not a red issue. It's not a blue issue. And well, many folks are pointing to the current state state lawmakers saying, you know, you knew this and you did nothing. Is it a Western Eastern state issue or is it just I, the public has gotten I, yeah, it? Yeah.
1: I think that there's a lot of things that go into this mix. Number one. Because we are in the capital city, we get the best and the worst of all both worlds. And by that I mean we have a population of about 500,000 people, which triples every day for the, pe- the million people who come into Boston, including the other legislators from around the state, <laughs> who expect our roads to be clear, don't want to see traffic, don't want to deal with crime. Don't want to have any inconvenience, don't like to sit and wait, and they want to have a beautiful view. And so they complain about how we run the city all the time. We want this. They want the city to be kept for their convenience, but they don't want to pay for it because as soon as we start talking about money and they said, well, why should Western Mass pay? Why should Eastern? Why should Central Mass pay for the MBTA? You don't come out here, and so there's always this, 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 um, the tension. struggle, yeah. the tension, because then the onus falls almost entirely on the ridership to pay for a system that benefits the entire state for real. It does, and so what legislator wants to go constantly to the ridership to say fair hike? So we haven't. So we don't pay. What most cities and most me- me- metropolitan cities across the country pay for the kind of urban transit that we would need to have to really call ourselves a metropolitan hub. We don't. We just don't. I think the other thing is that it's not something that you can take to people and do the ribbon cuttings <laughs> and feel good about it. It's not a building. Mm-hmm. And so it doesn't have the same kind of sexiness that building a senior center has. For legislators, And so they shy away. And one thing you haven't heard this week, which is very telling, no one's denying it. You know, they use I've seen the phrase called kicking the can, kicking the mm-hmm. can. And now the speaker says that we're going we're ready to take uh, some uh, action on funding the tea. But the first thing they did was to vote on a bill to deal with the deficit that the new governor came in to face, which included a 40 million dollar to the MBTA. And the same day where they criticized the former general manager for not being able to get the trains, you know, running on time. The 100-year-old trains, by the way.
0: Is it... it it was an interesting mix to me because, you know, I, I love being on Facebook and mixing right. it up and posting things. And so many of the suburban people who take the tea in one way or another into the city, yes. um, you know, and it's their state lawmakers for the most part that, that are are not doing anything. But now that we have a Senate president, who, Stan Rosenberg, who is from the western part of the state, do you think that this is an opportunity for some bridge building, both literally and
1: figuratively? I, I, I think that there's an opportunity for bridge building, not just because he's from the other part of the state because I think he's a leader. And I think that he is uh, a gentleman who has a history of doing the right thing, even sometimes when it's not the most popular thing. So I expect there to be movement. But I don't think that um, that there are going to be a lot of minds changed overnight. I mean, I, I don't. I think that there will, there will be some major um, upgrade and beautification of the tea over time, over 10 years. Certainly, the aura of the possibility of Olympic status um, puts that issue on the table, I think, even more Mm -hmm. than it would otherwise. And I think, again... But that's a good thing, isn't it?
0: yeah no it's, it's interesting Diane Wilkerson I, I had the same sort of moment where when we became national news in Boston <clears throat> yeah. for what happened last week with the MBT I mean and, and granted this is a storm this amount of snow if not the storm the biblical snow, proportion right I mean there's, there's everyone is no doubt that um, having grown up in Revere in 1978, I know that every elected official wants the best for the people that's It's right. just can we get it there and make it happen during this crisis but at the same time once we went from a national Story to an international story. I started to think, okay, well, I would like to be able to be considered to host the Olympics. You know, I want to live in a city that is able to represent and say we can do this, even if we had snow of epic proportions. And the sort of MBTA breakdown, which again, not surprising, but that what it what it pulled back the blanket of okay, the trains didn't work. We had biblical snow. But it didn't work mostly because uh, it hadn't been funded, and it was right. embarrassing. It
1: was embarrassing, but I think also impetus. I mean, the reality is the Olympics that we're talking about is summer, so we won't have train problems, but I think capacity is a really big issue as well. The trains is, don't work in the summer, though, too. It, it, it right. can get too hot. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> but, you know, not all the stories were perfect about what happened to Atlanta, but I think there's little argument that the 1996 Olympics put Atlanta, Georgia, on the map as an international city, and they weren't before. They so weren't before that, you, that's you, for sure. Do
0: you think you're close? I know you're still sort of open. You are open-minded about the Olympics and you're looking at digging in. But are you feeling um, uh, any more positive or negative? Are you going to go to more meetings? Are you still going to ask the hard I, questions? I
1: because I'll tell you, my, my concern is very kind of laser-focused on what happens to the people. What Given what I've now learned about the other cities, whether it's Beijing, Los Angeles, or Salt Lake City, and certainly London, the most recent mm-hmm. example from 2012, is that homeless people, ethnic minorities, poor people are especially vulnerable, probably the most vulnerable population with any discussion about hosting an Olympics. And that for Boston, it's an added problem because the cost of housing is escalated and skyrocketed. We have such a major affordable housing crisis, that the mayor has, kind of fo- has focused some major attention to that. He set a goal to do 35,000 new units by 2020, I think it said 2020. And we have a population that's one in four, you know, born outside of, of the country. And, and But we also have what I know is that the likelihood of them being able to survive an Olympics without some laser-focused attention on the next 10 years is pretty, uh, is pretty slim. And so I'm very concerned about that piece. What are the employment opportunities? What are the opportunities for women-owned businesses, for minority businesses? Because it's through that process. What we know is that women business owners hire women. That's just not my fact. That's a fact. We know that minority businesses hire people of color. And so if we can use this next 10 years, and certainly the three years between now and 2017, to focus on that effort where we are putting more people in Boston, our residents, in a position to get in the game, if you will, Mm -hmm. um, through employment, real meaningful employment opportunities, then we have a shot. Otherwise, we're going to be um, going down that same road. That We saw in London. uh, We saw in Atlanta that if people get displaced from our capital city, there isn't any place else to go. We've learned that from the closing of Long Island Shelter. Mm -hmm. This is it. This is not, you know, kind of the stop on the way someplace else. And so it offers tremendous opportunity. But tremendous downside if we don't plan.
0: Well, Diane Wilkerson, thank you so much for coming in. We look forward to having you back and talking some more about this. It's great to have your perspective on uh, what's happening with the Olympics. Thank you so much. Thank you. Diane Wilkerson is the former state senator for the 2nd Suffolk District. That's it for this edition of Under the Radar. You can join us next week at 6 p.m. on Sunday for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show and links to stories we discussed today on the web at wgbhnews.org/utr I'm Sue O'Connell filling in for the great Callie Crossley our engineer is John Parker Abby Huzika is our producer Under the Radar is a production of WGBH